0: Welcome to Caleb Can't Read. I'm Jordan Rabel. I'm Caleb Terrence. Caleb, would you I had it before.
1: Do you would mm-hmm. you like to try again?
0: Nope. It's okay. Hang on. Would you mm-hmm. fight for your country? No. <laughs> yeah, same. <laughs> Fucking hate this place. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, second question. Would you fuck for your country?
1: Why? That is a weird one, dude.
0: Mm, But for the safety, the secrets of America, would you fuck for them?
1: I wouldn't do shit for this country.
0: You wouldn't fuck for your country?
1: No. Hmm.
0: That's a lie. Well, let's get started, shall we? (laughs) (laughs) And it is relevant. (laughs) Okay. Okay. What are we? God damn it. Roald Dahl. Was born September 13th, 1916 in Cardiff, Wales. No way. To Norwegian parents, Harold and Sophie Dahl. Hell yeah, brother. Okay, here we go. He was named after Norwegian explorer Roald Amundsen, the first man to reach the South Pole just five years prior. Harold had immigrated to Wales from Sarpsborg in 1880 with his first wife, with whom he had two children before her passing in 1907. To fucking Where? Harpsborg. Oh, sorry. No, sorry. In not not Harpsborg. Sarpsborg.
1: Sarps- fucking Norway. Norway? No. Oh, God. You people are so whimsical.
0: <laughs> what the fuck? The fairylands! Mm-hmm. Yeah. Fuck, man. <laughs> well, Sophie immigrated to Wales from the UK sometime around then and ended up marrying Harold in 1911, together having four children, three girls and one boy, which was, of course, Rowald. Although Welsh... The children were raised with Norwegian as their first language. When Roald was only four, one of his older sisters died from appendicitis. At his 50s... 57- man, yeah, you really to learn
1: to structure things.
0: <clears throat> stretch what things? What? Never mind. Go on. What the fuck does it mean? I don't know. I'm sorry. It was stretch a random... What? <laughs> stretch nothing. Don't don't worry. <laughs> okay. There you go. Look, man, I'm stretching it out to 16 pages here, all we'll right? Stretch that ass out one. if you
1: don't fucking keep going. <laughs> all right? Proceed.
0: I don't got all night. <laughs> And his 57-year-old father died of pneumonia just a few weeks later. Now, Harold was a shipbroker, basically someone who buys and sells ships like they're real estate. So when Harold died, he left his family with a paltry sum of almost $7 million in today's money. Now, Sophie thought of moving to Norway with Harold's relatives, where at least the the kids would have a bit of a familial security. But one of Harold's dying— $7 million not secure enough? Yeah, right. You know,
1: <laughs> like that's pretty secure. Like I feel like that's a you
0: know you could get you know property investments. Yeah, know. but you know you got to remember this is a socialist nation where I'm at least told that they take everything away from you and you die cold and alone, and you'll never be a billionaire there. I'll take my chances here. Thank you.
1: I heard that if I get caught doing a beer on there, I go to a resort.
0: <laughs> yeah, the cops actually reward you.
1: <laughs> <laughs> like, dude, that was super badass. That, was that crime so you fucking did.
0: Sick. <laughs> like, <laughs> Uh, But uh, one of Harold's dying wishes was that the kids actually stay educated in Wales because he saw English education as some of the best in the world. Around this time, the little Roald doll met his favorite author, Beatrix Potter, at a book signing. Have we heard about her before? I mean, you've probably heard of her. She's author of the famed Peter Rabbit series.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the little coat rabbit.
0: Yes. Good. The coat rabbit. Yes.
1: Yeah. The flannel rabbit.
0: (laughs) (laughs) The flannel rabbit. Is it flannel
1: rabbit or coat rabbit? I can't remember. He's got a flannel on him. Coat rabbit because he was straight. Um,
0: (laughs) and And while it's unsubstantiated, this may have actually been Roald's first taste of becoming an author himself. Get the idea rolling around in his head. Well, When he was seven, Roald took part in what was later called the Great Mouse Plot of 1923. You see, he had just started at his first school called the Cathedral School in Cardiff. And there was a candy shop nearby called the Catherine Morgan Confectioner and Tobacconist, which was, of course, owned by a woman named Catherine Morgan. Tobacconist? Yeah, you buy tobacco as well as your candy. (laughs) (laughs) It's fucking wild! (laughs) Because being a kid back then was fucking sick. Why do they
1: like to mix that shit with candy so
0: much? It's fucking crazy! Uh, You know what? Good question. They still do it! Yeah, because nowadays you fucking smell somebody smoking. It doesn't smell like tobacco. It smells like cotton candy. It's wonderful. (laughs) Vaping is weird, man. It is fucking weird. (laughs) Now, this lady had uh, run the store since at least 1900, 23 years. This place was described by Dahl as, quote, the very center of our lives. To us, it was what a bar is to a drunk or a church to a bishop. However, the only problem with the owner, Catherine Morgan, was that she was a big old bitch, at least according to Rowald. She ran the only place in town the kids wanted to be. Yet she was apparently hell to be around. So one day, Rowald finds a dead mouse. Did she inherit the fucking candy store or something? No, she she she
1: opened it up herself. Look, I opened this candy store because I'm a fat piece of shit, not for children. Just to
0: torment kids (laughs) by like denying them candy, maybe. No, not without (laughs) currency, idiot. (laughs) So he finds this dead mouse, and he carries it in the sleeve of his school jacket. When he and his friends go into the candy store, his friends distract Catherine Morgan while Roald pretends to reach into a jar of what over there they call gobstoppers, jawbreakers. And he plants the dead mouse in the jar. They pay, they leave, and they think they finally teach the old curmudgeon a lesson. And since he was the one to do it, Roald is treated like a hero. But the next day, the kids walk by the candy shop and see the sign say closed. And looking in the window... See the jar smashed all over the floor and gobstoppers everywhere. And they're like, holy shit, I think he may have fucking killed her. (laughs) (laughs) Holy shit, dude. So when they go to school after morning mass, the headmaster has everyone line up in the courtyard instead of heading to class. And Roald's thinking like, oh my god, dude, the cops are going to fucking know it was me. I can't believe I'm a fucking murderer. But instead the cops uh, instead of the cops showing up, it's Catherine Morgan, and she instantly picks out Roald and his friends, and they all get caned by the headmaster. Just, you, you, you.
1: <laughs> Your dog got a squeaky toy. My dog does have a
0: squeaky toy. Close <laughs> that fucking door. <laughs> now, going to a private school was all well and good. But Mrs. Dahl wanted Roald to have a true English education with a public school, partly due to the horrific caning Roald received at the cathedral school. Well, the clo- the closest option was – What a is cr- it with Catholics and kids, man? Uh well,
1: just never fucking to, good.
0: Yeah, like you got to kind of uh, – what what avenue are you going down here? Exactly.
1: There's, <laughs> there's so many to choose from, but never nobody's ever like, yeah, I had a great time in Catholic school. Like hey, It was hey, normal hey, hey. and fine. To be like, fair,
0: it's people of all religions. <laughs> I mean,
1: public school was horrifying. Public school was fucking fine. No, oh, not for you. No, it wasn't. Why did you drop out? Well, you for those of us fun? that didn't
0: peak in seventh grade, it was a bit of a nightmare, Jordan. Uh, it was eighth. Okay, I was I was taller than all the others.
1: Had, <coughs> That's I, a lie. I had a rough time.
0: <laughs> We're I not going to go down this. <laughs> I'm sad. <now. laughs> well, the closest option. And was no matter
1: it? how much I work out now, I still won't be tall. <laughs>
0: getting mighty wide. <laughs> the closest option was across the channel at a boarding house in Weston, which Roald would stay at until 1929 when he was 13, where he'd then go to the Repton school in Derbyshire, a school founded in 1557 by a fucking knight, it turns out. I just thought that was cool. And although Sophie Dahl was trying to keep her son away from harsh punishments that she felt were exclusive to Catholic schools repton would turn out to be much much worse here was a place with a large amount of hazing where the younger boys would have to act as servants to the older ones
1: oh the- no this sounds really gay
0: <laughs> well oh,
1: just wait <laughs> and i don't mean that isn't like that's lame i mean that isn't that sounds literally gay oh
0: hang on the beatings from the older boys were frequent in Dahl's later biography of his younger years, called "Boy: Tales of Childhood," there's a chapter called "Fagging," where he explains. Oh no! Quote: I spent two long years as a faggot retent. <laughs> God damn it! Hang on. Oh shit, dude, that's not good. We can't laugh at that. That's a no-no word now, dude. <laughs> which meant we don't I, do that. I was the servant of the study holder, in which study I had my little desk.
1: Can you say the title one more <clears throat> time? You laughed, and I didn't actually get it.
0: That the. the what the chapter or the name of the book
1: the name of whatever the fuck his title is right now like as the, a person oh, like what his job as oh, a Oh he's serv- called
0: a, a fag. Oh. That's that's the name of it. Yeah. Oh no. So basically you were a servant to the prefects of the school and one of his duties was to warm the toilet seat for the older boys by sitting on them like with until No, you sat on it with your naked ass until they were ready to come and take a fucking shit. <laughs> the older kids genius would yeah, the older kids would, I guess, just feel a gurgling in their <laughs> tummy, and then they just open their doors and they yell "fag," and you had to stop what you were doing to go drop trow and start warming. <laughs> One of the prefects, though, he did pull Roll aside, and he was like, "Look, I want you to know that while- this is
1: so fucked up."
0: <laughs> I- <laughs> he was like, "While I am going to still beat you, you are the best seat warmer around. Your tush has." just the right amount of oomph to it, you know? Other kids' asses are just too bony, but you really cover the whole seat, you know? <laughs> like, it was a show of pride. But the beatings weren't exclusive to the older boys. Roald once recalled a time that the headmaster, a priest named Jeffrey Fisher, beat the absolute shit out of a poor kid relentlessly with a cane. The same priest... What'd would, the kid do? Uh, You know, I don't think he said, actually. Just – and honestly, everything was pretty fucking uh, minor. Like you knew that this (laughs) – Because they're minors? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) This happened to children. (laughs) (laughs) It's funnier. (laughs) That same priest would later go on to be crowned by Queen Elizabeth II in 1953 as the Archbishop of Canterbury. Basically uh, a religiously political position. The official priest, so to speak. Roald Dahl said that the beating he witnessed not only gave him his first doubts on God, but also a severe <laughs> oh, hatred. Gosh. I know, right? <laughs> oh, holy shit. <laughs> Dude. <laughs> Beat him so bad he doesn't believe. <laughs> like, God's not real. <laughs> <sighs> But also a severe hatred.
1: I got halfway through, <laughs> lost my faith, and then I had to go
0: warm a toilet seat. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, God doesn't exist. This is <laughs> this sounds about right. <laughs> but also a severe hatred of corporal punishment of any kind, which would later became a frequent theme in his well, books. Yeah. Uh, you is, know any, how- is anyone a fan of that? Oh, you know some people of his generation. I need to fucking work are. that
1: out in the bedroom, man.
0: <laughs> you fucking it wasn't safe. You keep that you kinky shit it. in the bedroom. You just <laughs> stay the fuck away from me. <laughs> Quit bringing your kinks out on children. That's weird. Stop as fuck. it, man. Just don't. <laughs> but the one plus they had at Repton was that the students were used as a focus group for the Cadbury chocolate company. Any new ideas that the company would come up with would be sent to the students to try and see if their new concoction could be marketed. And they'd have the kids basically write a small report to talk about how much they did or didn't like one of the candy bars. It got to the point that the young Roald doll believed himself a connoisseur of chocolate, once remembering to have written, quote, too subtle for the common palate. Ew. <laughs> he fantasized about creating a chocolate bar of his very own, one that would impress Mr. Cadbury himself. An idea that Roald would use in his later work. By the time he was in his later years at Repton, Roald had become quite popular. Played a myriad of sports. Cricket, soccer, even made captain of his squash team. He his what team? Squash.
1: Is that more hazing shit?
0: Uh, no, that's uh, that's when you basically, it's racquetball with a wall, kind of.
1: I would never want to be <laughs> captain of the squash team.
0: <laughs> Damn, are anyway. you sure? Because that actually sounds like <laughs> large weapon gets to sit on you. <laughs> I want to be captain. Of the I'm squash captain team. of the squash team.
1: <laughs> Fucking snap on the goggles
0: <sighs> and the snorkel. <laughs> the snorkel. Uh, he had a good athletic build. Uh, he was actually- not
1: today, boys. Taking off the training wheels. <laughs> <laughs> he
0: had a good athletic build. Uh, he was actually quite quite a tall lad. Uh, he'd top out at six foot six in his adult years. His dad and grandfather were both uh, almost seven foot tall themselves.
1: Wait, you keep growing as an adult. Um, or do you cap out at like 17, 15, 17?
0: I mean, more than that, but yeah. You,
1: so there's a chance.
0: <laughs>
1: yes. 30s around the corner, but if you're telling me I can get a
0: little taller than... I didn't a, know that. On April Fool's, I'm going to like sneak in and like just kind of add a couple inches to your heels <laughs> on all your shoes. You're going to be like, oh my God. Oh boy! <laughs> it happened? I'm a real man! <laughs> <laughs> in the summer, the Dahl family would usually spend their time with extended family in Norway. And the way he'd talk about it, they seemed like a fun family to be around. they played play pranks on each other, like putting goat shit in the brother-in-law's tobacco. Or the time his sister got to drive the family car, and they all encouraged her to top it out at 60 miles per hour. Well, she did. Just fucking redlining at 60. Yeah, <laughs> she did, and she crashed the car, and the windshield sliced Roll's nose off. <laughs> But they, oh. they they got it stitched back, and he was fine, you know? Sick, dude. Chick stick scars. It's cool. Move along. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Except when you look like a fucking, like, uh, like a scarecrow. I don't know. <laughs> you know? No, they stitched it back. Yeah, yeah. He's got a cool scar now. That's in the shape of, like, what, a triangle? Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. I don't know. It's goofy. Yeah. <laughs> but it was the folklore. I
1: mean, the guy fucking rates candy bars. He's a goofy fellow. Okay? Yeah,
0: that's like, true. Like... Uh, pretty whimsical so far. Except for all of the... Um,
1: Borderline sexual abuse
0: and physical abuse, yes.
1: <laughs> but it was the folklore... <laughs> <laughs>
0: to children. <laughs> <laughs> it was the folklore his Norwegian grandmother would tell him of, like, giants and witches that would become apparent in his later work. Fucking trolls and shit. Hell yeah. I know right. how y'all do. Yeah, fuck yeah. Now, they're kind of lame when you realize that they're all, like, put in children's stories anymore. Like, they're not scary anymore. You know? What? Billy Groatsgruff? I mean, come on. No one's just scared of trolls. So ah, see what I mean? Now, Roald's first job was as a door-to-door salesman selling kerosene. For what is it, kerosene again? Isn't, isn't that, that shit really bad? Yeah. It's, like, like, more active than gasoline. <laughs> like, it'll, like, it'll melt you. It's super gas. <laughs> yeah, pretty much.
1: Now you'll get up to 70 miles an hour before you crash and <laughs> rip your fucking nose
0: off. <laughs> this time it took off an air, too. For whatever reason, this job really clicked with him, as immediately after graduation, he joined the Shell Petroleum Company in July of 1934. Well, well, I would have been thrilled with the places they sent him. I'm guessing it was seen as new guy shit when they send him to places like Tanzania or Kenya. And it was just him and like two other guys when he was on assignment, but his living conditions there were just fine. He, he stayed in the shell house, which I imagine wasn't too bad since it also came with, it's it's a gas station. Well, it came with his own personal (laughs) cook and servants. I mean, wow. Yeah. Fuck you, new guy. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, oh, yeah. No, Tanzania was at the time, um, was at the time a British territory. And in August of 1939, World War II would be just a month away. And the British government was instilling a plan which would round up all the German citizens of Tanzania. But they would need the help from whatever British citizens were in the area. Nothing
1: good is going to happen now.
0: As such, Roald Dahl joined the King's African Rifles Regiment, where he would instantly be made lieutenant to command a platoon of indigenous troops. Because, you know, he'd be the only white guy. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Finding a new life for himself, Roald Dahl joined the Royal Air Force. <laughs> That's a
1: really bad idea.
0: What? To just be... You know how easy
1: it'd be to pick out the officer and shoot him?
0: <laughs> Fair enough.
1: <laughs> Which
0: one is he? The British one. Like... <laughs> <laughs> Well, Fucking joined, Norwegian,
1: whatever. Get him.
0: <laughs> he joined the Royal Air Force just a couple months later in November 1939. Now, the recruitment offices uh, where he signed up were in Dar es Salaam in Tanzania, but the flight school was in Nairobi, which is in Kenya, a whole other country away. But after Efficient. A, after a 600-mile road trip, he was there. And with just six months of learning how to fly a plane... On August twenty fourth, nineteen forty, Roald Dahl was assigned to the number eighty squadron and the RAF.
1: They were wild about pilots back in the day, dude. Like they oh, would just put yeah. any motherfucker in there. They just put him in that can and fucking send him
0: <clears throat> yeah. to
1: go fight other men flying the cans. It's That's like, hot
0: That's hot as shit. Sick. It's so cool. <laughs> it's cool.
1: <laughs> like, this is how I would like to die. This is so rad.
0: <laughs> Well, unfortunately, Roald not noticed yeah, a few problems as soon as he got there. The first was that he would not be trained on how to actually fight once he got in the sky. Just, you know, pull the trigger or something, you know?
1: Now what do I do? <laughs> oh, yeah, that's the secret, man. You just vibe it.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's kind of an issue. The second was that the squadron were flying Gloucester gladiators. And while that is a cool name, they were biplanes. Basically, they've been obsolete for the last 10 years. About a month into his career as a fighter pilot. Falling this goofy little paper. Look at me. <laughs> <laughs> About a month into his What am career, I shooting? Here's a Red Ryder BB gun. <laughs> pretty much. Dude. <laughs> After a month into his career as a fighter pilot, Dahl was ordered to fly 30 miles to a certain point in the desert and back. <laughs> Their job at this point was to just keep watch for invading forces. No real action just yet. You know, just checking the perimeter. But on the way back from his journey, Roald lost sight of the airstrip. Night was fast approaching, and his fuel was getting low. So, he decided to go for broke and make a hopefully soft landing in the desert. (coughs) Upon hitting the ground, however, he grinded right on top of a large boulder that was covered by the sand. (laughs) The (laughs) airplane was fucked, and he himself suffered a fractured skull, a broken nose, and lost part of his fucking sight. He managed to pull himself a safe distance from the blazing wreck before just passing out. Well, he was found. Damn. Yeah. Isn't that badass? He didn't even find anyone. Hit the one <laughs>
1: rock in the desert, homie. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's
0: still hot, though. Burn! <laughs> oh, my God damn it. <laughs> it's
1: a fucking sick
0: death. <laughs> well, he was found and rescued. And while he made a full recovery in the other areas, he never regained full sight. Oddly, he was still deemed okay to pilot an aircraft. Well, as he later found out, he was accidentally given the wrong coordinates altogether. Rather than skirting the perimeter of the Allied line, he instead flew fully into contested land that was actively being fought over with the Italians. (laughs) Luckily, there was no surface-to-air artillery at the ready, or he would have for sure just been dead. Now, the crash had happened on September 19th, 1940, and he was discharged from the hospital in February of 1941. So, in that five month period, the 80 Squadron was now fighting against the Germans in Greece. And now they had real planes. They had Hawker Hurricanes, to which Roald was only given seven hours of training in before being told he was ready to fight. Why don't only have seven hours? Why do they keep doing this? <laughs> <laughs> Cool. So how much
1: money does this fucking plane cost, man? <laughs> like-
0: <laughs> yeah, it's true. Like this is a multi-million-dollar machine in a day and age when that kind of numbers matter. Maybe we should teach him how not to crash it. Now, ah, seven hours is great. <laughs>
1: like, look, man, we just don't have the time. Look, <laughs> well, trust me, he'll 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 get up there, and then his urge to not die will take over, and he'll figure something out.
0: It feels to me like... Which, weirdly, I bet is how that happened. It, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> like, I, I'm sure that they were just like, like, eh, it's 80 squadron. Like, whatever, dude. They're all dead anyway. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Now, at the time, there were only 18 British aircraft fighting in Greece against the entire German Air Force. But Roald held his own. Shot down two planes in two days. As a friend of Dahl's who was also in the Air Force told him when he arrived in Greece... It's
1: only like a 2-1 KD right now.
0: Uh, yeah. Oh, no, wait. No D, actually. Uh, <laughs> uh, as his friend told him when he arrived in Greece, we have no radar here at all. The Greeks are our radar. We have a Greek peasant sitting on the top of every mountain for miles around, and when he spots a bunch of German planes, he calls up the ops room here on a field telephone. That's our radar. <laughs> That's really dumb. <laughs> That's not that bad. That's war, brother. On April 20th, 1941, Dahl rode alongside British fighter ace Pat Paddle in what he regarded as the Battle of Athens. According to Dahl, the fight started when all aircraft of the Royal Air Force flew over Athens in a stupid attempt at boosting morale. There were 18 planes two months earlier, but now there were just 12. Guess how many German aircraft showed up? 200. (laughs) 200.
1: (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I'm not doing that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Luckily, only five of the British aircraft were shot down, which is still almost half of the entire force. With the death of four of those pilots, including fighter ace Pat Paddle, and Roald Dahl just managed to get away. They shot down eight German planes in all. The Allies retreated from Greece later that month. Within another month, more pilots were killed, and out of the original 18, there was now only a crew of five. Five. The things Roald Dahl saw gave him headaches, which eventually grew so severe that he would just black out. Finally, there was a reason that he couldn't fly. (laughs) However, he was not discharged. Was it because they would send them against 200 people at a time and they realized that that was a really bad idea? I don't know, man. I was just watching John Wick the other night and I'm like, yeah, they could do this. You know, one dude against 200. That's fine. Come on, man. (laughs) You're badass. So, waiting to find a use for him, the Royal Air Force sent Dahl to London to await orders in a training camp. And for a while, Dahl thought this was it. Maybe he'd become an instructor of some kind and help pass the torch. But then he ran into Major Harold Balfour, whom, for no real reason, just got to talking with him. Well, the Major was impressed with Roald's conversation skills, and more importantly, he wasn't too bad looking either. Well, the major thought, instead of keeping him behind a desk, why not make him a tag-along as an air attache? Was that
1: a joke, or is that where this is going?
0: That's where this is going. Okay. Why not make him an air attache at the British Embassy in Washington, D.C.? Although hesitant at first, Roald eventually made his way to Washington in April of 1942. And at first, he was all about it. I mean, the bombings of London just happened a year prior. People were rationing their food. But here in America... Shit, war was barely on the table. But after only a week, he found that his job was ultimately bullshit. Quote, I'd just come from the war. People were getting killed. I had been flying around seeing horrible things. Now, almost instantly, I found myself in the middle of a pre war cocktail party in America. While in Washington, British novelist C.S. Forrester was writing propaganda for the war effort, and the two had met. They got to chatting, and Forrester eventually asked Dahl to give him a story of his days flying in the RAF. You know, go home, write down what you remember, give it to me. Uh, I'll get it cleaned up a little and get it printed in the Saturday Evening Post. Get paid. Well, Dahl went home and wrote out his experience with his plane crash in Libya. And when he gave this story to Forrester, Forrester figured, hell, this is as good as anything I'd be able to write. Let's just go ahead and print it as it is. So on August 1st, 1942, Roald Dahl's first story was printed by the Saturday Evening Post. Originally titled A Piece of Cake, the Post changed it to Shot Down Over Libya to drum up readership, even though nowhere in the story does it say that he was actually shot down. They paid him uh, 900 bucks for the story, about seventeen grand today. That's, uh... Damn, dude. What? And if you're born into money, people just throw it at you later. It doesn't fucking matter. That, like, holy fuck. That, that weird as fuck? Like, I don't... <laughs> How? Well, like, oh, I've already got money. I guess, well, I don't know. Maybe I'll wipe my ass with it or something. Oh, shit. This like, guy
1: needs more toilet paper.
0: him <laughs> <laughs> fucking 17 grand. That's fucking ridiculous. That's so much. Oh, fuck. <laughs> now, as it turned out, Roll Dahl was in Washington on special assignment. <clears throat> you see, Pearl Harbor had just happened a few months prior, but there were still a lot of people. CEOs and businessmen in particular that didn't want to put any money towards the war effort. Roald Dahl's job was to play tennis with these guys, do a little light partying, get to talking about how he was a distinguished hero in the war and how valuable their assets would be to join the fight. But above all, Roald Dahl was a secret agent with his penis.
1: A secret gay agent? No. Oh. You
0: see, the British... That would have been funnier. <laughs> You see, the British government had put together a little group called the Irregulars, which included Roald Dahl, as well as James Bond author Ian Fleming, Leslie Howard, who played in Gone with the Wind, and William Stevenson, the guy who would become the inspiration to James Bond himself. Now, William Stevenson was, by all means, the boss of the Irregulars, and their goal was simple. Convince rich people in Washington to join the war effort, yes, but if that didn't work, Fuck their wives. <laughs> the idea... Okay, yeah, explain. <laughs> yeah, fuck them! <laughs> the idea was to either instill pro-war rhetoric to the wives of these influential men so that they can nag their husbands about it later, or get secrets out of these this women... Is so... This is it's a little weird, This right? is super like... This, we had to try what we had to try, This know? is a layered fucked up cake, man. Like, there's a lot... <laughs> there's a lot of cake to, to unpack, unpack here. <laughs> <laughs> or, or they get secrets out of these women about their husbands so that they could later use it as blackmail. One of Roald Dahl's targets was actually a congresswoman named Claire Booth Luce, and her husband, Henry, was the owner of not only Time Magazine... <sighs> But also Life Magazine and Fortune. Now, just to give the porno you're running in your head an idea, Roald Dahl was 26 at this time, and Congresswoman Claire Booth Luce was about 39 when this happened. After just a few days... Those day- are good numbers. Yeah. After just a few days of nailing her, though, Roald Dahl called... Whoa, whoa, what? Whoa! What? No, he was on assignment. You escalated that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I didn't ask how they met. No, they fucked. <laughs> so All right. he's fucking a congresswoman. But after a few days, he called William Stevenson and he said he was done. And this is a real quote. I'm all fucked out. That goddamn woman has absolutely screwed me from one end of the room to the other for three goddamn nights.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Dude, I am done.
0: (laughs) But Stevenson told him to stick with it as he was quite literally, quote, doing it for England. (laughs) Uh, Some English humor. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
1: right, wait, hang on hang on hang on hang on all right hang on right, okay calling a pause okay yeah no we just had to google claire booth loose no what?
0: <laughs> type in young claire booth Lewis didn't have to there's a lot of good pictures here that, right yeah, yeah. <laughs> i got curious too and i was like oh man how bad? what no 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 no. this Whoa. is actually fine yeah yeah i think there's even a photo of her on the beach or something So like,
1: there's a pretty top. gnarly like I was, I was picturing something quite gnarled in there, like, just
0: wrestling down some... No, man, she, she was she was not battling All right, damn, dude. Yeah. And just to give you an idea of how well British meddling in Washington worked, FDR decided to go to war. What the fuck is she in right here? What is this? What, what are you, why are you still looking at photos of her? What do you, what do you is see? Is more what? interesting than what you're saying? <laughs>
1: shit. Wow. You done? Hang on.
0: I'm I'm just going to get you a Claire Booth loose, like, calendar. Dude, I'm just, I, it's just interesting. (laughs) It's interesting. (laughs) The way she looks is just very, like, you know, (sighs) intelligent. (laughs) Put your fucking phone down. Dude, go, come on. Three (laughs) days. No, hey, to- give it back! <laughs> no, God damn it. No, I'm
1: an you- adult and I pay for that. <laughs> you <laughs> will give it back to me right now. Put down your
0: Fisher Price phone. No! <laughs> it's Tonka. <laughs> <laughs> so, to give you an idea of how well British meddling in Washington worked, FDR decided to go to war partly based on a map that was discovered of South America that showed the Nazis weren't planning on stopping with just Europe. The countries had like new borders with German names and shit. Turns out, the map was completely faked by British intelligence. So they just got us into the war pretty fucking, like, based on lies. Uh, still a good thing, though. You know, <laughs> I'm not going to d- dispute that. Now, Roald Dahl did manage to climb his way up the political ladder in Washington. Got along great with Eleanor Roosevelt. Not that he fucked her. I mean, we don't know that he fucked her, but either way, the point was... Why wouldn't you just leave it at not that you fucked her? Well, because we don't know. There have been questions, Uh, but either way, the point was for Roald to, of course, get Eleanor to introduce him to her husband, the president, and it worked. Eventually, Roald Dahl was reporting directly to Winston Churchill via telephone. Basically, if Churchill couldn't weasel himself into a friendship with FDR himself, he'd at the very least know what was on his mind. And Roald's position as a friend to the Roosevelt's made him practically untouchable among the Irregulars. At one point, he was being enough of a smartass to higher ups that he actually got transferred back to England for misconduct. But William Stevenson and Roald were, at this point, really good friends, and they'd remained that way for years after the war. Stevenson didn't just get Roald back to Washington, but got him promoted, too. Like a cop. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry that you got in trouble. I'm really sorry that we have to reprimand you. How's a promotion? You know would be good Aww. for your mental health? <laughs> Success. <laughs> At its peak, British intelligence had around 3,000 agents meddling in Washington alone, and it was all being run out of a hotel room in Rockefeller Center in New York. Well, during his time in Washington, Roald Dahl wrote his very first book, a children's story called The Gremlins. The story is of the old superstition that stemmed from RAF pilots, that if something goes wrong with your machines, it's probably gremlins getting in there and fucking about, and not, you know, bad you, mechanics because you have uh, <laughs> obsolete <laughs> aircrafts and no one's training the and new. Not, beca- troops, <laughs> not because you know, <laughs> you know how they only gave you seven days to fly. How long do you think they train the mechanic? Like, really? <laughs> we could train him in seven hours, or we could tell him this children's tale in five minutes. You know? <laughs> so, anyway. also, this is like old timey. Like, okay, yeah, <laughs> like, oh my god, how
1: bad of a mechanic would you have to be to dick up shit that was that simple?
0: What, and it's still a fucking airplane. Yeah, it's st-
1: but it's not like a complicated fucking engine, man. Yeah, it is. No way. No. Yeah. No, yeah. I ga- I guarantee fucking to you, my Honda Accord would be harder to fucking work on. I mean, granted, than an old timey plane.
0: Airplanes still have those propellers where you have to push them to get them going, like they're on a fucking rubber band. But still, you know, like- <laughs> like, yeah, dude, like, it's probably just not a point towards me. But no, it's, it's just complicated. Block, <laughs> pistons. That's it. <laughs> like... Well, in Dahl's story, the gremlins are actually doing it for revenge, as their forest home was razed to the ground to make way for the aircraft hangars. As a pilot's aircraft is destroyed mid-flight and parachutes down to the water, he sees the little gremlins parachuting down, too. While on their descent... (laughs) adorable little gremlin parachutes. (laughs) Yeah. Well, on their descent, the pilot manages to convince the gremlins that instead of destroying RAF aircraft, they should fix them and together they can fight a common enemy... The Nazis. I don't know how the Nazis are a common enemy to Gremlins. I read it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) What the fuck? I don't like (laughs) laughing at that. (laughs) No, it wasn't Gremlins Nazis had a problem with. (laughs) It was nothing that whimsical, I assure you.
0: (laughs) As far as I could figure out, the Gremlins didn't have a publisher. But amongst these Washington elites, one man saw promise. That man... Was Walt fucking
1: Disney. The story's fucking stupid, by the way. I'm really disappointed in this concept. Like I think it's bad.
0: He loved the story so much that he fully planned Wait, on Gremlins making it. Gremlins
1: was almost a Disney fucking movie. Almost,
0: yeah. He he planned Holy on making shit. it his next film. Ultimately, however, the project wouldn't go through. Partly because the story had to go through the RAF and Walt was having trouble getting the rights to use their likeness for an animated film. Also, Gremlins are just like they're a regular thing that Walt and Roald didn't make up. So it would be kind of hard to trademark basically. Well, in 1943, the book was published by random house, fully financed by Disney with a run of 50,000 copies, 50 of those going to Roald himself who happily handed them out to friends and other people. He was porking one copy even went to Eleanor Roosevelt who read it to her grandchildren on a regular basis. And although the book sold well, it wasn't reprinted for quite some time due to the war making things a bit limited on what resources you could use and for what, which has made first edition copies of the gremlins extremely rare. Some of them being sold for up to $10,000. And although production on the film was halted, character designs were still made, including a female gremlin called Fifinella, which uh, after the film went bust was then adopted as a mascot for the women air force service pilots and although slightly altered, Fucking, the gremlins. My phone back. The, <laughs> the gremlins did eventually make a recurring role in Bugs Bunny cartoons. What's the first thing? You're just looking at Claire Booth Loose again, aren't you? I'm not
1: looking at Claire Booth Loose again, <laughs> even though I want to. All right. <laughs>
0: New backgrounds. Be professional saved. right now. Well,
1: this looks nothing like a gremlin.
0: What, is that Fifanella? Let me see. Is that it?
1: I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. The no, that's thing. It. That's, yeah,
0: because I looked it up too. That's Yeah, that's her.
1: It's got wings and horns, but
0: just look, looks like man, it's even, a
1: normal woman with wings and horns. That's a gremlin? Even
0: the Smurfs had Smurfette, which is just a smurf with hair. You know? Like, it, whatever. But yeah, yeah look I mean, up. Look up. Look up. Uh, look up uh, OG cart- Gremlins. Cartoon Gremlins. If you look up OG Gremlins, you're going to get like a rap group or something. Yeah, this is a little. No, I just got regular Gremlins. <laughs> what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bugs Bunny.
1: Okay, wait, wait. Bugs Bunny. Right, Bugs Bunny. Bugs Bunny. Or, uh,
0: gremlins. Gremlins. Okay, yeah, these look dumb as shit. Have you never seen those before? No, dude. Really? Yeah, really. Oh. Wow. <laughs> what? Oh man, do you get to something racist? No. <laughs> you put Bugs Bunny in there, and you scroll down. You're gonna get there some. some nope, time. just transphobic. <laughs> um, what the fuck? <laughs> um, <laughs> so anyway. Anyway, could go be on. wrong. Sorry. So, by the way. Roald Dahl remained friends with the Roosevelt's long after the war, though FDR did famously die in office, had dinners with them in the White House and everything. Though this one time at dinner near the end of the war, Winston Churchill had called and confessed how he'd meddled in American politics while Dahl was sitting at the dinner table, like didn't know that he was there having dinner with them. Just like, yeah, you know, everyone, Johnny, Jim, Roald Dahl, you know, (laughs) When FDR came back from his phone call, he was like, so I just had an interesting conversation with Churchill. That had to have been fucking awkward. (laughs) Following the end of World War II, Roald Dahl was honorably discharged with the rank of squadron leader, and his five confirmed kills in the air has technically qualified him as an ace fighter pilot. After the war, Roald Dahl explored his avenue as a writer. But although he found meager success as a children's author, he focused on something a bit more adult. He released some short stories here and there in magazines like Harper's and The Ladies' Home Journal, which he did eventually compile into a collection released in 1946 called Over to You, Ten Stories of Flyers and Flying. Yeah. 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 Well, and a stroke of good luck. This is not fucking Gremlins. <laughs> oh. They're not done <laughs> in a stroke of good luck. Dahl came into the path of Maxwell Perkins, an editor who'd worked with the likes of Ernest Hemingway and F. Scott Fitzgerald Perkins convinced Dahl to write his first full length novel. But unfortunately, before a genius like Perkins could really do anything to help the book along, fucking died. Basically the same thing that happened to fucking rudyard Kipling. So the unfortunate result of Roald's first novel came in 1948 from Scribner's called Sometime Never, a fable for Superman. The story is of an RAF pilot that discovers a gremlin in his plane. Gremlins who are mad at humans for raising their force to make way for their hangars. It's the same fucking story. He wrote Avatar? <laughs> it's, he just wrote the same thing, but like... For adults, and it, it's just that instead of making a propaganda piece for children, Dallin, it's a
1: propaganda piece for adults. He,
0: he instead makes a moralistic tale of uh, where war will lead us. And in the story, the worst does happen. As the gremlins say that they were once a superior race and will rule. I don't like the sound of that. <laughs> no, 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 it's okay. <laughs> and they will. Oh, sympathy lost. <laughs> They will rule once again once the humans are dead. The ensuing fallout from World Wars 3 and 4 lead to the gremlins dying as well, to which the only species to survive on Earth are the worms. The book is bad. Sold bad, reviewed bad, and has never been reprinted. But it was the first novel to come out about nuclear war as a plot point, which is neat. Uh, But regardless, Roald Dahl moved to New York to continue his dream as a writer, Looking to be in closer proximity to its publishers. Now, Patsy Louise Neal, born January 20th, 1926, in Packard, Kentucky, to William and Yura Neal. Oof, Yura (laughs) Neal. (laughs) <laughs> why does that sound weird? Because it sounds like urinal or... Ur- urineal, <laughs> 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 yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> urineal? <laughs> that's, that's what it is. a it. terrible fucking name. Something
1: was clicking in the back of my head, but I'm like too tired and or <laughs> and or buzzed to, to register that it was urinal. Something about
0: urineal makes my pee-pee. His name wind was
1: penis. I'm like, wait, why is this funny to me? I can't figure it out. Like, <laughs> what's happening right now? Well,
0: <laughs> oh, Patsy got her first job at the age of 20. As an understudy on Broadway, she became the international star known as Patricia Neal. She quickly won a Tony for Best Wait, Actress. Wait, did you do a musical for Gremlins? No. What's God, happening fuck, right That's now? a good idea. Shit. No, they didn't. <laughs> she quickly won a Tony for Best Actress after her first lead role in the 1946 play Another Part of the Forest. In 1949, she quickly rose to stardom with her first three films, John Loves Mary and The Hasty Heart both with Ronald Reagan and the Fountainhead with Gary Cooper and based on the Ayn Rand novel of the same name. Boy. (laughs) I was like, wait, Fountainhead. Oh yeah. (laughs) I I don't know if you'll remember this, but the Fountainhead was a massive flop. And when the audience left the theater at the premiere, everyone was just real quiet because it was just so embarrassingly bad. (laughs) Except everybody had secondhand embarrassment for Ryan Rand. Yeah. That no, was for them <laughs> and everyone else involved in it. Like, <laughs> Except for Patricia Neal's friend who came up to her and said, my, weren't you bad? <laughs> That's a true friend. <laughs> uh, and, oh, and just because I thought it was interesting, uh, Patricia Neal took Kirk Douglas as a date to the premiere of the Fountainhead, but it was soon found out that uh, she and Gary Cooper were having an affair. Uh, they had met a couple years prior in 1947 when she was 21 and he was 46. Uh, throughout Gracious. the 50s, Patricia Neal rose in stardom uh, on and off the screen, sometimes returning to work on Broadway, where she even played Helen Keller's mom in The Miracle Worker. But in 1952, Patricia Neal's friend in New York, Lillian Hellman, threw a dinner party, and who should be there but Roald Dahl? In just a year's time, on July 2nd, 1953, the two were married. Roald was thirty-six, and Patricia was twenty-six.
1: Yeah. In that same yeah.
0: year, yeah, I don't yeah. know, yeah. not young enough to make it too creepy. It's A little you funky. Know, it's a little weird. <laughs> it's like, it's like, uh, yeah, I you know. know. All right. All right. In that same year, in nineteen fifty-three, Roald Dahl released a second collection of short stories called "Someone Like You" from Knopf Inc. Stories which had been previously published in various magazines, some of which were rejected and a couple of which would later be adapted by Alfred Hitchcock for his television series Alfred Hitchcock Presents. One is called Lamb to the Slaughter and was actually suggested by Ian Fleming to Roald Dahl, where he apparently told him, quote, Why don't you have someone murder their husband with a frozen leg of mutton, which he then serves to the detectives who come to investigate the murder? Which is, that's the entire plot. (laughs) Mm, Very interesting. (laughs) How can I expand this to 40 pages? Hmm. <laughs> As it would turn out, Roald Dahl actually had some notoriety for his mystery and thriller stories before he ever decided to write for kids. Another story from uh, this collection ended up being the inspiration to Quentin Tarantino's skit in the 1995 anthology film Four Rooms. This story, I haven't seen that. Uh, it's one of his earlier works, uh, right after per- Perp perp Fiction. Perp Fiction. I own it. We can watch it. It's a good movie. Of course you fucking do. (laughs) Of course I fucking do. I I don't have any defense. I think like –
1: I'm going to put Quentin Tarantino fans right below weebs.
0: You think they're – all right. I mean – I can't argue that either.
1: No, 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 no. Being like – Like right above? No, like – To this – like on a scale on a scale <laughs> like the weebs are the worst thing here we're gonna put the, okay, we're gonna put gotcha, them here gotcha. like no still not as bad as fucking <laughs> weebs alright alright definitely anime people but the thing that makes it insufferable is like how many just like bro people how many what bro people are just super into it
0: weebs or like uh, are you talking oh Tarantino, uh, the, the Tarantino oh, thing, oh for sure yeah, 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 yeah well those are the same people that think that like they get the same you know certain letter pass as he does you know and, like, <laughs> try to use it quite often <laughs>
1: No, 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 no. Well, this story called... (laughs) Those lines do not give you the power to use the soft (laughs) A. (laughs) No, no, it's okay. I'm
0: quoting a movie. It's okay. I'm on cocaine. (laughs) Just the one word? (laughs) Well, this story (laughs) called The Man from the South is about a man vacationing in Jamaica who befriends a South American there. And as they get to know each other, the American talks about his old reliable lighter, which never fails to ignite on the first try. So a South American guy, Carlos, he says, How about a bet? If you can light your Zippo ten times in a row, I'll give you my car.
1: I'll and, suck your dick, sir.
0: <laughs> the American says, Well what happens if I lose? And Carlos is like, I'll chop your fucking finger off. <laughs> <laughs> so of course You're Done. Yeah. <laughs> so of course they decide to play the game. I swear to God. Which finger a pointer? Perfect. We're going to see people playing this at the 45 pub. One these <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the game goes smoothly when on the eighth ignition, Carlos's wife bursts through the door. She says that Carlos has done this so often that they've had to run away and are currently just trying to start a new life here in Jamaica. They've lost 11 cars, but have 47 fingers at home <laughs> As she hands over the keys to her car to the American as a forfeit, he sees that she's got missing fingers. <laughs> oh, yeah. Bro, don't fuck with Carlos. But I love him! <laughs> uh, Paul Newman played the American when it was adapted to TV for, um, for a Hitchcock Presents episode. <clears throat> and although I know no one has seen it, it was also the inspiration to an Asian horror anthology skit by Park Chan-wook, the guy who made Old Boy. And and the rest of the Vengeance trilogy. And I saw that shit years ago from a blockbuster rental, and it was good. (laughs) I was just excited when I got it, when I saw it mentioned, I was like, I remember! In 1954, Patricia Neal heard from Rowald's mother, Sophie, about a quaint little cottage being sold for around 4,500 pounds, a little over 130,000 today. Her and Sophie split the cost, and ended up buying the house. Now, it came with quite a bit of land as well, enough for both an apple orchard and a pear orchard, but it had its fixes. It had been lived in by farmers who were fine without electricity and didn't mind a little dilapidation. So the repair costs ate things up, but it doesn't seem like they really minded too much, as they also managed to add a guest wing and two more stories to the house. Which, I've heard of, like... You know, oh, a guest room. How about a a guest house in the backyard? Oh, sure, why not? Let's build him a little shed. Fucking guest wing? Are you fucking kidding me?
1: Guest wing (laughs) connected to your house.
0: Yeah, I'm sure that there's, like, nice little French doors that you can slam and just party off on your own side of the fucking house or something. It's, It's ridiculous. Separate unit. Also, two stories to the original foundation? That doesn't sound fucking safe. Sometime around then, Roald Dahl had visited the home of recently deceased Welsh poet Dylan Thomas. This was the guy that, if you recall from our Sylvia Plath episode, when she was an intern uh, for the magazine Mademoiselle in New York, they didn't let her sit in on this interview with him. And she was pissed because he was her favorite writer. So she started hanging around Dylan Thomas's hotel and the bar he frequented, but she never got to meet him. And then he died like two weeks later. Uh, he was the one who had the last words, I've had 18 straight whiskeys. I think that's a record. So <laughs> so anyway. It's not and you're going to die. <laughs> so anyway, Roald Dahl had visited Dylan Thomas. I want you to know something
1: though. The person who beat that record threw up immediately afterwards.
0: <laughs> you see the video on YouTube. I put it on all the time. One, two. <gasps> So Roald Dahl had visited Dylan Thomas's home, and he saw the writing hut he had in his garden, and he thought, "I want one." So he got one made in his garden as well. Anyway, although Roald Dahl had already found some meager success with his collection, something like you, he figured he'd try adapting some of his stories for the stage by melding multiple ones together. In 1955, Dahl produced a play called "The Honeys" about two women that decide to kill. I don't their- like this. It's two women that decide to kill their husbands. And ultimately, it turned out that the theater life just wasn't for Dahl. Uh, He thought the director was an ass. The play didn't run very long. And in the end, he found that writing short stories was just more for him.
1: Yeah. That sounds way less stressful than fucking, like... (laughs) dealing with an dealing- entire yeah. fucking play. Yeah, like, no kidding. A short story sounds like the least stressful fucking job in the world. Yeah,
0: at least with like a movie and shit, like you can go into like fucking reshoots, rewrites, all this other kind of shit. Like you have to get everything fucking first take when you're doing a play. That sounds stressful as fuck.
1: Also theater? Totally gay.
0: A little gay. A little gay. A bit a
1: bit fucking gay. <laughs>
0: you going to want me to cut that? <laughs> No, we give it. <laughs>
1: All right. It's fine. It's okay,
0: but it wouldn't stop we'll him. No fucking get it. <laughs> I <Like>, calm down. <laughs> Just saying, <laughs> but it wouldn't stop him from trying to later adapt his greatest works into stage plays, which also would never pan out. But one of the main characters in The Honeys was uh, performed by the lady who was Miss Daisy and Driving Miss Daisy, which is neat. Uh, Well, that same year, in 1955, Roald Dahl and Patricia Neal had their first child together, a daughter, named Olivia 20 Dahl on April 20th, 1955. They named their kid 20? She was named Olivia after the Shakespeare play Twelfth Night. And 20 after the day she was born on? Not only because it was the day that she was born but because when she was born Roald Dahl had twenty bucks in his pocket. That's real. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. What a guy. (laughs) A couple years after the birth of Olivia came another daughter, born April eleventh, nineteen fifty seven, Chantal Sophia Dahl. Usually called Tessa by friends and family. And in nineteen sixty, a son. Named Theo. But just four months after Theo's birth on December 5th, 1960, Theo's baby carriage was hit by a taxi cab. There really isn't much info on this. I fucking checked. (laughs) My guess is that Patricia Neal was maybe jaywalking across a busy New York street, but that's just my guess because the only info I could find was that little Theo flew 40 feet in the air. Whoa. That taxi cab had to have been flying. (laughs) So due to this incident, However it may have happened, cerebral fluid quickly flooded Theo's brain. There was a cap of some sort that was installed in his head that would drain excess fluid. However –
1: well, he lived? Yeah. Oh, okay, cool. You skipped that.
0: No, they put a cap in his head for funsies. I don't fucking know. Do they do weird things bog. when they embalm people? Okay. Like
1: all kinds of wild okay, shit. Like,
0: enough. no, no, he survived, but they, they had this cap in his head that was supposed to drain excess cerebral fluid, but it jammed all the time. Now Roald Dahl was in the model airplane community. And I mean, he was, he was really into it. He would go to fucking meetups to talk about new models that were coming out and just chat with American veterans about their time flying in the war. And Roald knew a guy in the community named Stanley Wade, who was a hydraulic engineer. So Dahl and Wade start toying with this new idea, something that could help unclog this cap in Theo's head automatically, rather than having to do it by hand. Well, they start getting information from hospitals, eventually getting the attention of a neurosurgeon named Kenneth Till. So with the help of not only a hydraulic engineer, and not only a world-class neurosurgeon— but with the backing of London's Great Ormond Street Hospital, Roald Dahl helped invent something later called the Wade Dahl-Till Valve. And it did exactly what they set out to do, kept the valve from clogging. Now, in the months that it the took... The head valve? Yeah. yeah. The head brain valves, Yeah, so it would just... it would. Sense. So he's got like a faucet in his head? Yeah, basically. And it would know when to turn the faucet on. He invented that. <laughs> All right. Yeah. But in the months that it took for the invention to be fully realized, Theo was already making a full recovery and was no longer in need of it. But with the valve completed, oh, dang! And I was going to put a faucet in your head. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to make you look Word. like the. I was going to make you look like the valve guy. You know, <laughs> you'd be like Frankenstein, but way lamer. <laughs> uh, but you know, with with this valve completed, the three men decided to produce it with no royalties to themselves. Basically, just gave away their invention for free. The valve is no longer in use today. Medical science has gone far above it. But until its ob- um, ob- ob- obsolescence, uh, it saved... Good job, man. Yeah, thank you. I, I wrote just it. you that out. <laughs> yeah. Due to that, it saved the lives of at least 3,000 children worldwide. Uh, it was in use for about 10 years. Now, while all this was happening, a group of gypsies started camping at the hey, end wait, of the... Wait, aren't we week. supposed to not say that anymore? I, you know... I don't think so. I thought we were supposed to not say that. I thought that I think was like, that was, I think that was pretty much made up by the same white people who started saying Latinx instead of Latino and Latina. Cause dude, I had a fucking teacher who was a legitimate Romani gypsy. She said gypsy is fine. <laughs> I'm going like to one teacher, though. I don't know. Uh, now, <laughs> <laughs> so here's the thing. So gypsy started camping at the end of the lane to the doll home. And in 1960, their house would affectionately be renamed the gypsy house. So okay. there you go. Okay, all right, all right. They actually ended up buying what's called a Vardo from them. That's one of those carriages that you always see them use in movies and shit, you know? The the one that look like circus carriages and shit. It's fucking say a circus carriage. No, because it's called a Vardo. That's what I'm explaining to you Is a word that I know that you've never heard before. Bet,
1: man, this is going to be... I'm letting you know right now, if we're only halfway through, <laughs> this is going to get rough, dude. It is, it is Wednesday, my dude, and... And I am tired.
0: <laughs> oh, it's fine. Uh, the, the kids used it as a playhouse. Well, around the same time, Roald Dahl came out with another book of short stories called Kiss Kiss. This had stories like The Landlady, which I feel all middle schools made their students read, about a guy staying at an old lady's bed and breakfast, and uh, she serves him, serves him tea and it tastes like bitter almonds, meaning it's cyanide. That's a Roald Dahl story. Uh, Another story I was surprised to find was written by him is the one where a guy creates a machine to hear the thoughts of plants and all he hears is them screaming as someone mows the lawn. (laughs) I'd I'd heard of that story before, but I had no idea he wrote it. (laughs) Now, for whatever reason, Roald Dahl returned to writing a children's story, and a year later in 1961, it was published. Whereas he had a name for himself as a short story writer already, this would be seen as his first major work which would put his stardom in the limelight as a children's author. From not Fink, this is James and the Giant Peach. Oh, that's what that dude wrote. <laughs> it's is like, that the one thing
1: that He's you- like, I remember this dude's name. I don't know what the fuck it is. Hey, you're
0: going to be really fucking surprised when we go down the list of other ones. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Whoa. Quote, Until he was four years old, James Henry Trotter had had a happy life. He lived peacefully with his mother and father in a beautiful house beside the sea. There were always plenty of other children for him to play with, and there was the sandy beach for yeah, him to he run. Was, about he was on.
1: happy and then rhino.
0: Yeah. And the ocean to paddle in. It's a quote. Shut the fuck up.
1: Yeah. No, I'm just saying. We don't have to do this. I, I'm doing it. Everybody it, knows fucking James and the oh giant peach, God. Jordan.
0: It was the perfect life for a small boy. <laughs> we're gonna. Then, one day, James' mother and father went to London to do some shopping, and there a terrible thing happened. Both of them suddenly got e- eaten up in full daylight, mind you, on a crowded street by an enormous, angry rhinoceros, which had escaped Don't from the London Zoo. fucking zone. make it take longer, you piece <laughs> of shit. <laughs> the book actually goes much the same way as the 1996 movie does. Um, James goes to live with his two shitty aunts, Aunt Sponge and Aunt Spiker, who abuse James and forced him to do child labor for the next three years. Then one day... He meets an old man with a bag of green crystals. They are the product of a thousand crocodile tongues boiled in the skull of a dead witch for 20 yeah, he days. Yeah, like, he,
1: like, buys and ingests crystals from yeah. a homeless man.
0: <laughs> Isn't that why you quit school?
1: <laughs> no, I was just dumb.
0: <laughs> <laughs> wasn't the meth at all. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, boiled in the skull of a dead witch for 20 days with the eyes of a lizard, the fingers of a monkey, and a bunch of other stupid shit. But the old man says that if James eats this bag of shit, he'll gain powers that make him strong. And there's no explanation to this guy at all. He just shows up, gives James a bag of garbage, and leaves. But he says to be (laughs) 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 careful. I pooped in there. But he says to be careful, for if he were to spill the contents of the bag, the crystals will make whatever. Shake it. Spit on it. (laughs) Slap it. Eat it. (laughs) They'll make whatever they come in contact with, whether it be bug. Insect, animal, or tree, big and strong. This is very specific, actually. It is, right? Maybe there's some weird metaphors here at play. There Mm. aren't. We're not going to get into any of that. There's nothing. It's just absurdist. (laughs) Well, of course, that's exactly what James does. Just spills everything out on the ground right in front of this derelict peach tree. Today we're learning about how James and the giant peach is racist. (laughs) (laughs) And before he can pick up the crystals, they all sink into the ground. Well, it isn't long before the tree produces just one piece of fruit. A big, juicy peach. We're yeah. having
1: way too much fun with this, man.
0: Mm. That Aunt Sponge and Aunt Spiker forced James to go into the tree. Spiker or Spider? Spiker. You sure it's Spiker? Uh, yeah, I read it.
1: <laughs>
0: All right, man. Okay, apparently my whole childhood was a lot... Oh, no, you just not- didn't watch it with subtitles on because it was on VHS. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. But by the time he gets up to the, uh, the peach... I, the peach has already gotten twice as big and, Fuck. and as they watch the peach gets bigger and bigger until eventually the weight of the thing bends the tree and touches the ground, becoming the size of a mansion. Of course, James's aunties don't let him anywhere near it. Instead, charging the public admission to come see it behind a tall fence. When the crowd is dispersed for the night, James is told to go clean the garbage left by the crowd, but having had nothing to eat the entire day, he secretly goes up to the peach see if he could take a bite. When he's up close to it, he sees a hole on the side that he, for some reason, decides to crawl up into to see what's up. And it's here Hole that, in that peach. Oh, just God, look at the hole right in the you center can, like, of that big, up in juicy it. thing. <laughs> Me too, James. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> and it's here that he sees a cast of bugs that are bigger than he is. There's a grasshopper, a spider, that's hot in the movie, if i remember remembering right. Right. Yeah. Okay. Not just me. Okay. Yeah. it's Weird though. In <laughs> earthworm. Like, there's no reason for that. No. 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 No, no dude. In, in the illustrations in the book, she's not either. I don't know where it came from. What the fuck? There's so there's an earthworm, a ladybug, a glowworm, just because she's French and a centipede. She's not. She's not French in the book. She's either. got this stupid little hat. Who decided to make her hot? I don't know. Why uh, is it
1: hot? It's a fucking spider with a weird face. It's the stupid little hat, man.
0: Is it the little hat? It's a stupid little hat. So for whatever reason, the bugs, uh, they also speak English and have cognitive thought. The, The group decides in their friendship to embark on an adventure whereby the centipede cuts the stem of the peach, holding it to the tree. And it rolls away down the hill that James lives crushing and killing his aunts in the process and launching the peach off a cliff and into the ocean. Their celebration is cut short. However, when they believe that sharks may be taking bites out of the peach which will cause them to sink. Wait, I, remember, I remember this from
1: the book. Their mouths the like movie? aren't big enough. No, not a book.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. They weren't actually. Yeah, much they in can't. On they it. can't yeah.
1: munch on it because their mouths can't fit around Because it it's too fuck. It's too much of a round peach. <laughs> it's too fucking juicy. <laughs> <laughs> too, can't get well, your mouth around it. It's just too
0: fucking big <laughs> and firm. <laughs> oh, the hairs on that peach. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, dude. I'm game. <laughs> I'm the grown well, man. well, before they, they find out that the sharks can't even bite into it, they're all freaked out. Uh, the The grasshopper the grasshopper even says, "quote I'd rather be fried alive and eaten by a Mexican." Whoa, <laughs> I don't remember that. Don't think they put that in the movie. <laughs> don't remember that from the book either. Fuck. <laughs> well, using the earthworm as bait, James manages to get five hundred and two seagulls close to the peach, and using webs from the spider and the silkworm, lasso them all. To where the birds lift up the peach and up into the sky, however, the cloud men who cause all- weather phenomena don't like their uninvited guests bursting onto the scene and begin to throw hail and lightning before the peach shatters a rainbow and flies off. I don't rem- what I don't remember that from the movie honestly look. It was in well. I know it was in the book. Yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) But the Cloudman part was fucking weird. They didn't put that shit in the movie. Also, the the, they did the like one was kind of stupid.
1: They did one giant metal shark (laughs) in the movie instead of the instead of the mini sharks.
0: Yeah, that's true. Fuck. Like many, not many. Many many. They make their way over to New York City, where an airplane cuts the webs tied to the seagulls and impales the peach on the top of the Empire State Building. Everyone on the ground believes it's a bomb. And the police arrive, mistaking James and the bugs as aliens as they emerge. Surprisingly for the NYPD, no one is shot. And James tells his tale where the peaches paraded through the city before being devoured by hungry children.
1: Or were any of the insects black?
0: (laughs) The spider. (laughs) James manages to get his insect friends a job, and he goes on to write this very book. And James Henry Trotter, who once, if you'll remember had been the saddest and loneliest little boy that you could find, now had all the friends and playmates in the world. And because so many of them were always begging him to tell and tell again the story of his adventures on the peach, he thought it would be nice if one day he sat down and wrote a book. So he did. And that is what you have just finished reading. James and the Giant Peach would, of course, be a huge success and is also the beginning of a style of storytelling that Roald Dahl would emulate for the rest of his life. Torturing children. Usually with at least one good adult to counteract the idea that all grown ups are evil, but I believe this thinking stems from Dahl's own time at Repton. And usually in his books, the child wins and the adults like get their comeuppance one way or another. He also had a wonderful knack for coming up with words that meant absolutely nothing, but a child would be able to figure out. For instance, to an adult... Food that's scrump-diddly-umptious doesn't mean anything, but kids know that it means delicious because it's something that they would use to describe it.
1: Because it sounds kind of like delicious.
0: Yeah. yeah. Uh, Dahl said he never oh, used Oh, no, do I have
1: the mind of a child?
0: You Yeah. Oh. <laughs> this is
1: not good. This is not good. I'm a man.
0: No, Caleb, it's nonsense words. No, 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 I get it. Oh. No, Caleb, no. No, <laughs> oh, no, Jordan, no, hang on. <laughs> um. The doll said he never used big words because he knew he'd lose his target audience. He also read his drafts to his kids during bedtime. If they begged him for more, when it was time to turn out the lights, he knew he had something. But if they just said goodnight, then he was like, fuck, I got to revise this. Apparently he had this list of eight rules when writing his books. One, just add chocolate. Two, adults can be scary. Three, bad things happen. Four, revenge is sweet. Five, keep a wicked sense of humor. Six, pick perfect pictures. Seven, films are fun, but books are better. And eight, food is fun! With an exclamation point. Uh, Yeah! I (laughs) I don't like him. Also, in almost all his early work, Roald would interject these random rhymes that just come out of nowhere. For instance, when James and, his, and the Bugs are talking about the possibilities of their journey, the centipede goes from talking normally to saying, We may see a creature with 49 heads who lives in the desolate snow, and whenever he catches a cold which he dreads, he has 49 noses to blow. Just random shit like that. I, I thought it was odd. <laughs> like, they just break out into song almost. The centipede said that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> From him? I trusted him. In
1: the movie, they were just like, give him an
0: accent. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess the, the, these books aren't really for me, so, I you know. Yeah, you know. no. <laughs> <laughs> now remember, although James and the Giant Peach was a huge success on its own, Roald Dahl was known up to this point as a mystery writer. And as such, he was asked to host the 1961 television series Way Out, which was basically CBS's answer to The Twilight Zone, which they also owned, So I don't know why they thought it was a good idea to compete with their own show. Anyway, uh, the twilight zone had come out two years earlier and was still immensely successful. And with way out, they wanted doll to host 26 episodes at 650 bucks an episode about a thousand dollars today. But doll only wanted to stay on for three episodes because he just needed the extra cash for Theo's operation, which at this point was still ongoing but he stayed for five episodes overall. And while the twilight zone would run until 1964 with five seasons and 156 episodes way out only lasted 14 episodes in the first season alone. Apparently, and this could be someone just saving their own ass for a sucky show. The episodes were too dark for daytime television. After one television studio got enough complaints, they just cut to static during the half hour way out was being presented and more studios would start to do the same. I I would like that if it were true. I don't know if it is though. CBS eventually cut their losses and canceled the show altogether in favor of the more popular and family friendly twilight zone. I guess while the majority of episodes are available on YouTube, some of them are considered lost media. What was it called again? Way out. But it was with a, uh, an apostrophe. Before the the way. So it was like, way out. You know? <laughs> like, it's not way out, but I think it's supposed to be like a way out. What's wrong with the show? Out. We hate the title. Yeah, it's stupid. <laughs> <The> apostrophe sucks. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, and I guess the show was produced by a cigarette company. So everyone smoked throughout the show. And I guess people on and off set got really sick. Fuck, fucking, I'm not watching this shit. They got shit. really fucking sick. <laughs> like, oh, God stop. <laughs> ah. <laughs> Mommy, light me up. Just a year after this, in 1962, Roald and Patricia's first child, Olivia, came home from school with a letter warning parents that there had been a measles outbreak at school. Patricia Neal sent a letter to her brother-in-law, Ashley Miles, for advice, as he was the director of the Lister Institute of Preventive Medicine in England. In return, Miles sent them capsules of gamma globulin, basically a box of antibodies, to help fight measles, but told them to give it to their son, Theo, instead.
1: Wait, no vaccine at this point?
0: No. Hmm. Miles told them, quote, let the girls get measles. It will be good for them. Within that same month on November 19th... Uh-oh. Yeah. (laughs) Here we go. Uh Uh-oh, why is it in the same paragraph? I've heard this before and recently. (laughs) (laughs) Within the same month of November 1962, Olivia contracted the disease where her fever led to convulsions within a few days. She went unconscious was taken to the hospital where she died the next day on November 17th, 1962 at the age of seven. I'm sure it was a bit awkward with that brother for a little while. <laughs> was that good? I mean, was that good for her? It, it may have saved Theo. I mean, he was at risk. He, w- he did have a fucking brain injury, I guess. So yeah. I guess it makes sense. Maybe. I don't know. I don't like that. But yeah, I don't yeah, <laughs> I don't yeah. like the option either way. No fun. Although herself in grief, Patricia Neal was tasked with keeping the family together as Roald had hit a world record depression and kept away from his family, spending hours at a time at Olivia's grave. And whereas it helped Patricia to, you know, talk with the kids – uh, Tessa and Theo about their sister to help ease the news of, about her passing. Roald Dahl never spoke about Olivia for the rest of his life. Instead, he took to gardening at the gypsy house uh, for meditation. And when he was done with the garden, he planted 200 roses and then a pathway leading to his writing hut. And then he became an expert at raising orchids Uh, And then he raised parakeets in the tea house. Oh, yeah, they had a tea house. Uh, And then he started farming onions, perhaps to hide his tears. So, yeah, he kept plenty. Fuck you. (laughs) No, that's good. It's good dead child humor. So he kept uh, plenty busy and all away from his family, literally doing anything other than discussing with even his own wife and kids about what had happened. And those onions, he actually did enter them into local vegetable contests, and he always won for Biggest Onion, but he never mentioned that he was using special feed from out of town to make them bigger. (laughs) So, I mean, still shitty. (laughs) In desperation to find some kind of happiness, Roald Dahl thought to turn to religion. In doing so, he asked the old... Anglican priest that beat him back at Repton. Jeffrey Fisher for advice. I'm starting
1: with Catholicism.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know what? On second thought, maybe not the best
1: route. Wait, isn't this guilt-based? <laughs> I don't know if this is a good...
0: Uh, oh, it was your fault. Have you thought about Buddhism? <laughs> <laughs> I heard that Kipling guy. is kind of a Nazi. and he, So he was consoling enough, uh, the the priest, but... What ultimately turned Roald Dahl away from Christianity entirely was being told that although Olivia was in heaven, her dog Rowley would never join her there. <laughs> what? A- hey, man, I didn't mention that she had a dog. Why did you add in that detail? Like, <laughs> you dickhead. It's just, it's, I mean, what, a, fucking, dude, even if you believe that, dude's in grief. Maybe, obviously... Skip that part. Be like, yeah, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm sure. Anyway, because I'm pretty know, sure like, he wasn't like,
1: what about the dog?
0: No, I'm sure. I- they just
1: added that spice in, <laughs> like, just like, oh, but her dog, she'll never see her dog again. What is wrong with you? Yes, like-
0: everyone, everyone you love is in heaven. Your aunts, uncles, grandmother, pa- your parents, your just your say child, that. leave it there. Your child, leave it there. Oh, but all the animals that you've ever loved are burning in hell. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> Doll later wrote, quote. I wanted to ask him how he could be so absolutely sure that other creatures did not get the same special treatment as us. I sat there wondering if this great and famous churchman really knew what he was talking about and whether he knew anything at all about God or heaven. And if he didn't, then who in the world did? But that didn't stop Rewald from being respectful towards religion. He at least knew that some in the village's community of great were, um were doing what they could for him. And his family, and as such, he donated a wooden statue of Saint Catherine to the church because their original was stolen. Uh, but after he did that, some bastards stole that one too. <laughs> ah, the English thieves! Ah, uh, my work's not done. <laughs> On May twelfth, nineteen sixty four. Ophelia but he's sitting in the
1: bottom of a front house somewhere.
0: Uh, fucking yeah. <laughs> <laughs> On May twelfth, nineteen sixty four. Ophelia Magdalena Dahl was born in the Radcliffe Hospital at Oxford, England. But anyway, when Dahl wasn't spending time away from his family in the garden. I'm sorry, what? Uh, he had a kid, but he didn't really speak about them. And uh, I don't know, it didn't seem like they had Fucking a lot of time. Fucking say, say about that their dad then. You... Well, you know. You have cause... so much
1: detail and so much dumb horse shit, And then you're just like, beep, Yeah, well. No, had a that's... kid, whatever. You know, yeah. skimming over it. Yeah, exactly. Like there isn't something to talk about. Like even if he didn't talk about it, that is in itself something to talk about, you dumbass.
0: Yeah, no. So anyway, when he wasn't spending time away from his family in the garden, he was spending it away from his family in his writing hut. In 1964, Roald Dahl wrote his second children's novel, and the one that arguably gained him him the most fame. Taking inspiration from his time as a candy tester in Repton, and hearing the rumors of secrecy that the Cadbury Company went through to keep their formula a secret, Roald Dahl came up with his next book. From George Allen and Unwin comes. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory.
1: Oh, yeah. <laughs> How is this always a surprise to you? <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm here to do a job.
0: Jordan. Charlie Bucket is a boy living with his parents and two sets of grandparents and what can only be described as squalor. The town they live in is home to Willy Wonka. I've seen
1: that movie. It's not that much worse than my current living situation, actually.
0: Uh, yeah, that is true. Uh, <laughs> That's sad and very true, especially with the amount of people that share a bed. The we have a bed
1: <laughs> full of old people too.
0: <laughs> the town they live in is home to Willy Wonka's chocolate factory, and Grandpa Joe tells Charlie of the fanatical madman that runs the place. Once there was an Indian prince that asked Mister Wonka to build him a chocolate palace, and he did. But he also warned the prince to eat it before it melts. But he didn't, and it melted. In the 2013 musical adaptation, he fucking drowns. <laughs> now, apparently there were rival companies that began stealing secret recipes for how Wonka made his candy. So knowing he could trust no one, decided to close the factory and fired all of his employees. But the factory has since then reopened, though not to the public. And no one knows how Wonka, Wonka's factory is producing chocolate if they see no one coming in and no one going out. No one ever comes in. No one ever comes out. Well, one day, Willy Wonka himself puts a notice in the newspaper that under the wrappers of his candy, there will be five random golden tickets for admittance to his factory. The first four are found quite quickly. One by Augustus Gloop, a fat child that's lucky he didn't eat the ticket himself, Mike TV, a boy whose only wish is to be in front of the television, Violet Beauregard, who currently holds the world record for chewing the same piece of gum for three months? And Veruca Salt, whose father forced the workers of his peanut factory to do nothing but open Wonka bars until a golden ticket was found. Also, a great girl, uh, riot girl, band. Now Charlie comes from a very poor family, one that barely has any money for food. As such, his one present per birthday is always just one bar of chocolate. So of course. Charlie unwraps his birthday chocolate and finds nothing. But then Grandpa Joe gives him his life savings, a dollar, to try again. <laughs> Me too, Grandpa Joe. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> and this time he finds nothing. But then Charlie Bucket finds money on the ground and again buying a chocolate bar finds the last golden the day of the tour arrives. What the fuck did you say it like that? that was I had to so swallow late. in between. Okay. <laughs> God damn, dude. The day of the tour arrives, and all the kids have brought their parents, except for Charlie, who's brought his grandpa Joe. The children are brought into the factory and into a large room with sugar grass and chocolate tulips and everything else that's edible, including the chocolate waterfall. And poor Augustus Gloop, the dumb fat bastard, begins scooping as much of the chocolate river. Are you
1: about to fucking retell me the entirety of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, like not me haven't. and everybody fucking else? In Did case you seriously you write this shit down?
0: We got two more pages. Two,
1: A two summary <laughs> of fucking Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. Fuck you, Jordan. <laughs> Skim it, bitch. No, we we know what happens. No, they start no, no, picking no. the kids because off. There's Loompas. There, There's
0: fucking there weird are. candy plants no, and no, no, shit. No, no, no. Okay, you don't know. Of the Oompa Loompas. Just let me get to that part, all right? Fucking no, no, no no. Fucking no. no, 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 no. No, you do not. I'll, I know. Oh, you are they going to be sp- weirder? Yes. Uh, okay, we'll bit. skip to that. We don't need a- yeah, to... I'm be- fucking getting to All it, you bitch. have
1: to do, Jordan, is be like, oh yeah, everybody's familiar with this. The kids start getting picked off. Boom. Don't describe what he fucking does unless it's different.
0: This is when the children are introduced to the mysterious workers of the factory who are told to fetch augustus out they are of course the umpalumpas but instead of them being weird alien looking midgets they are actually african pygmies in the book oh that's yeah. so, much so shut worse. the fuck up bitch okay my bad yeah that's way <laughs> gnarlier which willy wonka pays in chocolate for their servitude <laughs> so to reiterate <laughs> a billionaire has africans laboring in his factory and are being given food possibly shelter as payment he has slaves. He has candy slaves. But you know they're they're happy because they like to sing songs out in the fields. I mean the factory. You know, <laughs> is going to become a small problem for Roll.
1: I mean adult. it's not. No no no. It's fine. You, no no no. All I right. mean it's not like they weren't slaves before, but now it's <laughs> like real bad. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's
0: like, a little weird.
1: It's like whoa whoa whoa. Wait so, whoa 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 whoa. Orange <laughs> is the only ex- palatable color for slaves nowadays.
0: <laughs> so yeah, basically, um, as you said before, the rest of it. Doesn't really matter. Okay, we we all know it. Um, uh, basically, by the end of the book, it leaves only Charlie Bucket, whom Willy Wonka takes with him into a glass elevator, and it shoots the thing like through the roof of the factory, or flies over Charlie's neighborhood. And Wonka tells him that without any children of his own, he'd love for Charlie to inherit his company. The end. Originally. Charlie was actually supposed to be illustrated as a black kid in Dahl's original script, but his editor said that having a black main character wouldn't appeal to readers. (laughs) Remember, they're still English. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. And the NAACP quickly had a thing or two to say about the use of Oompa Loompas resembling slavery, (laughs) but believe it or not- How's he running the factory without any workers? (laughs) What's going on? But believe it or not, Dahl figured they actually had a pretty good point. Like, literally, he was just like, oh, oh. Oh, fuck. Well, (laughs) fucking oopsie-daisy, I published it. Yeah, no, he really, though, like, quickly was like, fuck, look, I... Hey, English white guy here. Sorry. (laughs) You know? Oh, yeah, you guys would be really bothered by that. (laughs) In later editions, he had the illustrations depicting the Oompa Loompas as these short, hippie-looking things... And removed all references to Africa. Uh, also, I have, I have nowhere else to put this, but for the 50th anniversary cover that Penguin Modern Classics put out of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, they used a photo of this creepy dolled up little girl from this 2008 French photo shoot that was meant to be creepy, but it had nothing to do with the story itself. So, yeah, they, they got a lot of shit for it. It It is fucking weird looking. It's the kind of thing you'd see on Fox News about pedophiles hiding in plain sight or something. That's basically what it looks like. Anyway, the book was, of course, an immediate hit and landed Roald Dahl further into his stardom. Today, it's one of the most common children's books around. My source is today. Mm. Boy, Tales of Childhood. Boy. Boy. By Roald Dahl. Damn, that was good. Puffin Books, 2013. You've been practicing that since like 2013. Fucking yeah. get a life. <laughs> James and the Giant Peach by Roald Dahl, Puffin Books, 2013. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory by Roald Dahl, Puffin Books, 1988. And Wikipedia. Now, have you given any consideration whatsoever mm, no. about porking? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I haven't. So pork for your country. Oh, dude. Not even for Claire Bruce Loose. <laughs> Something about that woman fucking drove him to insanity in three days' time, though. I gotta say. Like, that's. That's something. Coward. <laughs>